Amen. All right, take your Bibles. We'll have the children dismissed to the children's church. And take our Bibles and let's turn once again to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, this is our fifth message actually in in this series and hope to uh, continue this. uh, praying that today's message won't be quite as long as last Sunday's, which uh, went all Sunday morning and all Sunday night. Uh, but uh, we are going through the letters that Jesus wrote to his churches. And uh, there is a promise in the book, uh, in the inter- opening verses of the book of Revelation, that there's a blessing to those who will read and understand and and. Uh, as we are going through these letters to these churches, we are finding out that uh, there were problems, uh, there were difficulties, and actually uh, we will find as we go through these seven letters, uh, uh, many like to try to uh, turn them into uh, uh, prophetic church ages, and, and uh, I, I reject that completely because there's as many different explanations of those ages and dates set as there are commentators to make them. Therefore, uh, the fact that there is no consensus means that that's really just an interposed idea on top of the Scripture. If it were actually something God intended it would be something that we would be able to see clearly and understand. And there would be a consistency uh, of understanding. That's one of the ways that we can know the Bible. Our understanding that the Bible is correct is simply because it's written down. The Bible says there, that no Scripture is any private interpretation. And I have challenged many over the years, if you're the only one that's smart enough to figure this out, you're not near as smart as you think you are. Uh, God did not give you a special message. In fact, that's one of the problems with this church, is they had someone standing up in the middle claiming to be a, a special messenger of God. And the, <coughs> excuse me. The um, letter to the church of Thyatira starts in verse 18. And actually, this is the longest letter. And and truly, this is the most troubled of the seven churches. Uh, Most people, when they think of a troubled church, they uh, always go to Laodicea because that was the church that God said, makes me sick, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And uh, yet... The church at Thyatira, he talks about those who sat in the pews of this church, who had personal knowledge and were operating in the depths of Satan. No other church had that said about it. And so as we look at this church, and truly we'll find churches of every day and of every age that, that have had these same troubles, and one of the things that uh, should be our prayer, should be something that we should be very concerned about, is we never find ourselves uh, in the condition that the church in Thyatira found itself in, as Jesus addressed it, verse 18. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. 
I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold! I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And this morning my prayer is that our church will hear what the Spirit is saying to this church And as we always start, it's with the introduction. Jesus knows what's going on in his church. And in verse 17, I mean 18, he says, These things saith the Son of God. This is his first introduction. He he does not introduce himself as the Son of Man. He does not introduce himself as the Savior uh, of the church. He does not introduce himself as the one that holdeth the stars and the candlesticks. He gives his greatest title and his fullest authority because he's going to be dealing with some very, very deep problems that are within this church. And then he says, Who hath his eyes? like unto a flame of fire. Now, Jesus is described in uh, chapter 1 as eyes with a flame of fire, but uh, certainly uh, if, if you speak the English language, uh, you quote this Bible. There's so much phraseology has been included in our daily speech. We'll say... There is fire in his eyes. How many of you have ever heard that phrase used? I mean, how many of you ever used that phrase? Uh, he's staring at me like he had fire in his eyes. He wanted to kill me. He wanted to, to look through me or burn me up, it seems. And, of course, if you follow the, what is it, the, the comics and the superheroes, all, all, several of them have power to destroy things with their gaze. And uh, Very poor imitation of what is going on here. Jesus is saying, I am looking at you. You 
are in not just my, my stare, but I'm in examining you all the way through. Later, he will say that he, that he is the one that tries the reins and the hearts, uh, the, the innermost thoughts. Sometimes we can, we can cover things and, and, uh, people often, uh, I, I say this is the most, uh, the greatest lie that is often told. How are you doing? Fine. And, uh, of course, nobody wants to hear all the complaints and all the troubles and, and every little thing, but, uh, we better be careful. Jesus says, listen, I am looking at you. I am examining you the whole way through. Now, we live in a day of the slippery slope, do we not? Uh, everybody talks about, well, that's a slippery slope. And, and just continually, politicians, and of course, if the politicians weren't on a slippery slope, where would they be? Uh, probably not in existence. I mean, that's the only place they know. And Jesus addresses this church. His feet are like fine brass. Uh, that's, uh, if we go back chapter 1, glowing as they were in a furnace. Not just polished, but actually giving light. And we talk about being able to stand strong. Being able to stand firmly. And Jesus is, is simply helping this church to understand, I'm not moving I have not changed. My feet are planted. Uh, brass in the Bible, as you go through, if you like the symbolism in the Bible, is always a symbol of judgment. And Jesus is here and he says, I am judging this church. I am judging it with the eyes like a fire. I am giving all of my authority and exerting my authority as the Son of God and God the Son upon this church. And then, he tells us what's going on. I know thy works. And it goes on. And charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Do you know that this is the only instance in the book of Revelation where the word charity is used? And it's used to describe what is going on in this church. That is a very positive thing. I want you to get this. Jesus, This is Jesus' church. Jesus was addressing this church. Sometimes we, we, we tend to say, how in the world could this be a true church with Jezebel teaching in the church? And, and yet Jesus said, listen, this is my church. And the things that are going on in my church, at my direction, under the influence and the empowerment of my Holy Spirit, these are good things. Charity. Uh, we've been over this many, many times. Uh, it, the working definition, if you got one of those modern uh, Bibles, they just take out that word and they put the word love in there. But... The word charity in your Bible is much more than love. It is love that has action attached to it. 
Uh, we live in a world where we think if we talk about something nice that we've solved the problem. Uh, how many of you have seen those signs? This is a drug-free school zone. Want to make a bet? And then the other one, no prayer in public schools. As long as there are tests, there will be prayers in public schools. No no questions asked. And uh, uh, they have all these places where this is a gun-free area until somebody shows up with a gun and starts shooting people. Lies. Everybody tries to say these things, but this is charity here. This is love that has action attached to it. They were doing the right things for the right reasons. You remember the Ephesian church? What had they lost? They had lost that first love, that relationship with Jesus, understanding that we love Him because He first loved us. That everything is about Jesus. It's not about us. This church had not lost that. In fact, they were exemplifying that. It says that the works that are going on now were greater than the works that were going on at the very beginning of the church. So they had charity and service and faith. Patience. They hadn't quit. They were able to endure suffering and hard times. They were working... And they were working greater. You know, it was amazing to me as I was reading just some of the commentaries and different things that people said. They always talk about the longest letter to the shortest church. I mean, to the smallest church. And it just seemed that... But as we read this, how could this be a small, insignificant church having all of this going on and still having the problems going on that were going on? That would It would demand that there was... More than 30, 40 people there, 100 people. This, this had to be a large church, an influential church, for all of these things to be happening and still have the problems that they had. You see, Jesus had made a promise in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be infiltration by the devil. And, of course, his greatest work has always been imitation. You go back to the Garden of Eden. What did he tell Eve? He said, listen, if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God's. Little g, little o, little d, little s. Imitation God's. That's always been the devil's greatest work. Is when he can substitute his ideas and his things for God's things. Jesus moves on without even taking a breath, notwithstanding. Verse 20, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, boy, the, the commentators, they just love this verse. 
because you can run with it as far afield as your imagination will carry you. Uh, today, we, we, I pray that we will not do that. We'll resist that urge just to go all over the place. He says, I have a few things against thee. You know, sin does not come separately. We often think we get to pick and choose what we would like to do. But as one old preacher said, sin always comes in a six-pack. You can't take the one you want and not bring a few of its friends with it. And that's why Jesus says, listen, you got one big problem, but this big problem is causing a lot of other problems in the church. And the problem is that woman, Jezebel, whom you've allowed to preach and teach in the church. She calleth herself a prophetess. Now, you have to understand, the book of Revelation was the last of God's revelation given to mankind. The churches did not have, at this point, a complete Bible like you and I have today. And so, uh, this woman stood up in the church and uh, was claiming special revelation, special knowledge of God, and was bringing this, bringing this into the church and teaching other people in the church. And the word that the Bible uses is the word seduce. Now, let me read the definition of this word to you. It says, to lead... Uh, a, a person astray in conduct or belief to draw away from the right or intended course of action to or into a wrong one, to tempt, entice, or beguile to do something wrong, foolish, or unintended of persons or their action. This is the second definition, and that's from the Oxford English Dictionary there to help us understand that this word seduce, it means to change direction, to substitute a secondary direction for a true direction. And of course, we understand that the woman here is not an individual person necessarily as much as it is symbolic, and the definition that the Bible gives of Jezebel and why this name is used is in 1 Kings 21:25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. It's Ahab was the king. Jezebel was the queen. Her primary job was that of what we call a catalyst. You see, she wasn't the reaction, she wasn't the, uh, the, the outcome, she was the one that stirred Ahab up and kept him going in the wrong direction. She's the one that, Ahab was the willing companion, but Jezebel was the one that kept him moving in that wicked, rebellious direction against God. And so, what we have here is a changing. And we look on, I want to just get this here, as Jesus talks to this church here, he says, 
You've suffered. It says, because thou sufferest that woman. Now, that word suffer in modern day English simply means to endure pain or to uh, uh, bear something that is... uh, uh, that, that brings discomfort and things, but the word suffer in the Old English sense means to allow. It means that though I might not, this is not my first course of action, I'm going to allow this to happen. If you remember the story of Jesus' baptism, he went to John, and John forbade him, the Bible says, for. He forbid Jesus. He said, I want you to baptize me. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. John, I know this isn't what you want, but if you're going to obey God, this is what you're going to do. And of course, John suffered him or allowed him. He baptized Jesus in fulfillment of the biblical command. And here we have a pastor and we have a church. That's saying, this really isn't our first choice, but we really don't have a choice. I guess we'll just allow this to go on in the church. And Jesus said, I've got something against you because you're allowing this to happen in the church. You're, you're not stopping this. But look at Jesus' response to this. He said, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Jesus said, I'm addressing Jezebel here. I gave her plenty of time. And, of course, we understand this is figuratively speaking. It's not an individual person, but it is people in the church that are doing this. He said, I gave them time. I gave this person, these people, time to repent. You see, the Bible tells us that if there's anything that God does, anything we should be impressed about God is His long-suffering toward us. Can we say amen to that? And I've heard preachers preach, why doesn't God just rain fire down? Well, do you know that His patience is what gave you time to find repentance in Jesus Christ? That His long-suffering... Uh, Romans 2, it says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? This is uh, Paul speaking to the Romans there as he is explaining to them the reason God hasn't rained fire and brimstone down is because he's giving us all a chance to come to him. He's given us all an opportunity, and there was space there. God, because He waits, does not mean that He is inactive. God, because He doesn't rain fire down on you, does not mean that He is for what's going on. Never take God's patience for permissiveness. That's the message to this church. He said, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. Behold, he said, I want you to pay attention to this. I will cast her into a bed, and then they commit adultery with her into great tribulation. 
except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works. So what we have here is Jesus is addressing the church, but his action is not against the church. Because Jesus cannot fight against himself. See, you have to understand that either this is his church or it is not his church. And oftentimes we've had people trying to define and trying to uh, redefine and establish. Well, the only uh, what is a true church and what is a false church, the only way you can establish what is a true church is by adherence to what's in this book called the Bible. By, by the way, that is a Baptist distinctive for which we make no apologies. You can study the history of the Baptist peoples. And someone has said over the years, different people, oh, you only believe Baptists are saved. No, no, that is not true. We, we believe a lot of Baptists aren't saved too. Uh, that's, it's not in a name. It's in this book. And we need to follow what's in this book. And Jesus is com- uh, uh, commanding here and explaining that he is going to take this Jezebel and her children and he is going to put them into great tribulation except they repent. Uh, Does that term great tribulation ring any bells as we're in the book of Revelation already? Hello? Uh, The majority of the book of Revelation is describing the events that will happen in that literal seven-year period called the tribulation. The last three and a half of it is the great tribulation. And and please don't parse your words so much that uh, you, you try to have the church going halfway through the rapture, I mean halfway through the tribulation and stuff. All of the tribulation is great. Nearly three-quarters of the world, if we understand our Bible correctly, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the world's population will die in less than seven years. Now, you stop and think about that. How are they going to bury the dead? Well, the Bible tells us that there's going to be one battle that's going to take them over six months to bury the dead from one battle, the battle of Gog and Magog. Most people believe that that is going to occur in the middle of the tribulation period as the Antichrist betrays the Jewish people and tries to usurp authority that belongs only to God. And there's going to be just terrible, terrible things. But here's why Jezebel and her children are going to end up in the tribulation period. Because they're not saved. Do you know that one of the Baptist distinctives, as we're talking about those, one of the distinctives of these churches here in the book of Revelation was a regenerate church membership. Now, that's the way that they phrase it for the books and for the scholars and things. But what it simply means is 
that in order to be a part of the true church, you've got to be saved first. Is that an amazing thought to anybody here? In fact, you can't be baptized in this church until you're saved first. You've got to give a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. We do not offer salvation as a church here. You've got to go directly to Jesus to get salvation. Can we say amen to that? Then you get baptized. And baptism is the door to the membership of the local church as it is your public testimony of faith in Christ. And that's why when someone comes and says, well, I was baptized in a uh, Pentecostal church or Nazarene church or Protestant or some other church of some other type, we simply say, listen, we understand the process you went through and we understand the sincerity that you had. But you see, the authority is in the Word of God through His church. And when those two things don't match, then it's not biblical baptism. I was explaining that to someone and I said, do, do you understand, uh, you know, I said, or have I, I made that clear? And, and uh, he just looked at me and said, yeah. He said, uh, you're trying to ensure the integrity of your church. And I was sitting there, wow, uh, uh, that's, that's a great way of putting it. You see, that's what baptism does. And yet here we have this Jezebel in the church which means they lied about their profession of faith in Christ, that their baptism was a mockery, and yet once in the church, claiming special revelation and special knowledge and drawing people in the church into that circle and that assurance of a false hope of Christian life. Now, if I can give this a more practical application here, as we look down at the very end here as the promises, and we'll get there in a minute, it says, He that overcometh, he says in verse 26, I'll give power over the nations. Now, Jesus, as he's addressing his churches, the promises that he gives the churches it's not that salvation uh, of the tree of life, uh, eternal life, is only relegated to the Ephesian church. Salvation, eternal life, is to all believers in Christ. Amen? And, and that intimacy that Christ wants to have, as we went through last week of the, uh, of the, um, of the church at um, um, Pergamos, and how that Jesus was wanting to give a special name and, and have that intimate relationship, that's, again, to all believers. You see, he's trying to help us look at how different churches can end up and the things that they will face. And these are, uh, uh, in, uh, in writing, we call them composite people. It's where we take a whole bunch of events and put them together so you can fit it in the time allotment. Now, Jesus is not doing that. What he's doing is he's taking seven individual churches and he's dealing with different things going on in those churches to give us the full and complete view 
of how God wants to deal with His churches. And so, here, He's dealing with this church and He says, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. Now, if we'll go to Revelation chapter 17, we're, we're going to find a correlation here. Jesus said he's going to cast this woman and her children into great tribulation. And let's go to Revelation chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 3. It says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a, uh, a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, That's the beast, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And we'll skip down to verse 16. It says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now, there again is much figurative speech here. But what we simply have is one of the greatest errors that has plagued uh, the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, those that have accepted this error into their church are no longer part of Jesus' church. That's why Jesus addresses them separately. And it is another of what we would call a Baptist distinctive. It's the separation of church and state. It is the, the sin is the bringing together of these two forces. You'll see, the church has been attacked from within in losing their, their first love there in the book of Ephesians. And uh, then they are blasphemed by those that say they are Jews and are not. And then we get to the church at, at Pergamos and we have the attack of the, um, the Balaam who was trying to merge the, uh, merge religions, the ecumenical movement. And then we have the attack of the Nicolaitans who were trying to merge the deeds of the world with the church. And now we have Jezebel that comes in and the Bible tells us that the woman in the book of Revelation This is not the same Jezebel as in Revelation chapter 2 in the church uh, at, uh, uh, I'm sorry here, 
at the church at Thyatira, but she is certainly a forerunner of this, of this mother of harlots, the greatest. The devil's goal has always been soul domination. And in order to have that happen, what we have to have is we have to have a political control and a spiritual control. This battle was, has been fought since there have been men to fight it. You go to Genesis chapter 11, and what do you have? Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. A man putting himself in the place, and some want to liken him to a hunter of souls, was what he was after. And, of course, his kingdom began where? Babylon, the seat of all false religion. And you take every false religion that is in the world today, and you can trace it back to that root. I don't challenge you to waste all that time tracing back false religion, because the command to the church is to hold fast what you have. But we're trying to understand here that you see the seduction that is being brought in. The church had already suffered great persecution. Nero, uh, uh, several of the other uh, uh, emperors at this point, and, and there would be more to come and even more terrible uh, persecutions of the church. And you know, one of the simple things, all you had to do was sacrifice to Caesar. And you could do whatever you wanted in the Roman Empire. Well, the Bible says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's, right? I mean, if we just offer a little sacrifice here and give Caesar his assent, they won't persecute us anymore. Can you do that? Oh, yeah. But you're not Jesus' church anymore. See, one of the biggest arguments in the early church was, can you surrender or deny that you're a Christian and then come back and be a part of the church again? Can, can you go down and pass the test at City Hall by offering a sacrifice to Caesar and then come back to the church and be a part of the church? Oh, maybe we have Jezebel teaching here, huh? Seducing the servants. The fornication here, the adultery spoken of what is is more of a spiritual immorality than it is a, a physical immorality. You see, why can't I just appease the world and then I'll be free to serve God? Because once you do the first, you can never do the second. You see, the Bible calls that the depths of Satan. How many of you here are familiar with the history of a time period called the Crusades? 
I mean, it is some of the darkest and most debauched chapters of human history. They called them warriors of the cross. We sang that song, uh, The Banner of the Cross. And, and let me tell you, uh, one of the most corrupt and, and devoid of any humanity and goodness at all, the Knights Templar carried the banner of the cross. And, and they're still making up stories about the wickedness that happened a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago by these people in the name of the church. And by the way, is there a connection between the Crusaders and the city which reigneth over the kings of the earth in the days that the book of Revelation is written? Yeah, there, there's a connection there. It was the same city that was sending out the Crusaders, as is mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's a scary and terrifying thought, is it not? You see, this challenge, this fight was trying to seduce or turn from the right way. It was trying to substitute a physical and earthly goal for the spiritual truths that Jesus had set down for his church. No true believer in Jesus Christ has ever taken up arms to protect Jesus because he doesn't need protection. My God takes care of me. He's not so small that he needs me to take care of him. Can we say amen to that? And you see, we have the example. We have Constantine, who became the first, quote-unquote, Christian emperor. Now, according to Constantine's own words that we have recorded, he, he refused baptism uh, until he knew that he was approaching death because he wanted as many of his sins washed away as he possibly could before he died. Is that Bible doctrine? No. You trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you're just as saved whether you ever get baptized or not. Baptism is your public testimony of Jesus Christ. The fact that that's what he believed tells us that Constantine will be on the wrong side of eternity. He'll be in Jezebel's crowd. Even though he claimed and he to, to be the truth, teach the truth and bring the church in and there are just so many examples. How many people know the history of the Mennonites? The Mennonites came from a Dutch preacher named Menno Simons. I would assure you today that if Menno Simons were alive, his doctrine and his preaching, 99.9% uh, .9 in all major points would agree with what we preach and teach at our church. In fact, he was very strict about baptism and refused to accept baptism from other groups that had different doctrinal positions. And, and uh, there's always argument about what people believe. Some say that he wouldn't even baptize someone uh, that was baptized somewhere else. I don't know if that's true. He's not there to help but uh, to answer those questions. But I believe we'll see him in heaven someday because he preached salvation by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. He preached 
and individual local churches. And he was uh, a famous leader and he helped other preachers and other churches be established. But about uh, a little time period after his death, the Reformation had taken sway. The Dutch Reformed Church had, had become the state religion in the nation of the Netherlands. And they made a deal with the Mennonites. They said, if you'll, you don't have to assent to anything, but if you'll just bring your babies down and register them and baptize your, uh, sprinkle your babies, we'll, we'll accept that and, and we'll let you do whatever you want. Now, if you had the choice between sprinkling a little water on your baby's head or having your baby killed or being hunted down until uh, if the government found out, that might be a very, very tempting thing to do. And we're not going to misjudge the Mennonites. We're not there. It wasn't my children on the line. But I will tell you this. The true believers in Christ left the Mennonite movement and refused to have their children baptized because that's not a biblical thing. But you see, Jezebel taught that it was okay. That we could have a little compromise. I've said this many times, the whole purpose of the Methodist denomination started by John Charles Wesley was not to start their own denomination. It was because they recognized that the majority, and by majority we're talking vast majority, uh, of people attending the Church of England were unsaved. All you had to do to become a member was submit to baptism. You were brought into the church. Uh, they did not teach salvation in the late 1700s. They had no um, uh, early 1700s when the Wesleys were there. They had no uh, true doctrinal teaching. And so the Wesley brothers brought the message of salvation to the Anglican church. Of course, it didn't take long before they were thrown out of the Anglican church, so they started their own. I want to challenge you. Jesus started his own in Matthew chapter 16. And there needs to be a submission to the true church of Jesus Christ. You see, when we adopt a goal or a purpose for our existence other than those outlined in the Scripture... The word would be seduction, especially if you believe you're doing the right thing. Now, now we do have some frauds. Uh, I was walking through a street fair and I saw Scientology had a big booth set up over three spots. They had rented out and they were there talking to people and all of this. Does anybody know why L. Ron Hubbard started Scientology? Here is his statement. He said, start your own religion, you'll become a millionaire. And he did, many times over. Made a lot of money. And there are still people foolish enough to follow that and claim it's the 
one of the new fad religions of Hollywood, I mean Wood. And they just love to do strange and unusual things. Let me tell you something. The goal of the church is only one. The purpose of the church is only one. It's to be the body of Christ. To do what He would have us to do. To reach not only our area, but into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Tuesday's a primary. If you're registered to vote in the party holding the primaries, you better vote. Cup comes November, you better vote. You have that responsibility if you're a citizen of this country. But don't ever think that it's almost a joke. Uh, could you imagine a Christian mayor in New York City? Uh, I mean, that, uh, <clears throat> uh, that is a paradox in extraordinaire, is it not? Uh, but uh, should that opportunity ever present itself, it would not solve the problems in New York City. Because New York City's not church. You see, you can't confuse the church with society. The church should influence society, but the church's job is to see that people who live in this society are anchored to the Word of God. Then those people go into the society in which they live and they can change it. Why do you think this country, up until the last, uh, basically the last century or so, was very much free from political corruption and all of these things in its government? I mean, there were, there were individuals, yes. Uh, but the government itself, the police officers, the mayors, the, the governors of this country in its early history, were honest and just men who tried, for the most part. We're not talking about everybody. We're not talking about Tammany Hall and some of those things that went on. But what we're talking about is, as was described by the French historian, America was a giant Sunday school class. Its people are pure. Its people are simple. And that is what made America great. That was written in the 1820s. Oh, that that were true today. Amen? But we're not going to get there by having a church that is trying to change society. Because that's never been the church's goal or its job. The church's job is to take the message of Jesus to the world in which we live and let Jesus change the souls. Can we say amen to that? And you see, that's, that's Jezebel. And that's why Jesus says here to the church here, he says, uh, this Mother of harlots that we've read about in Revelation chapter 17 will be the church of the tribulation period. It will be the actual outcome 
uh, of those who have followed the teachings of Jezebel, they will unite and they will believe and they will uh, propagate the Antichrist as the second coming of Jesus Christ. They will believe the lie. And we'll have a marriage of government and church and all will be geared to worshiping this one person the Bible calls the Antichrist or the beast. But there'll come a time when the kings realize they don't need church anymore. Because they have the God, little g, little o, little d. And they're going to destroy the church. See, the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to step into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple, and sit upon the mercy seat in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, showing that he himself is God. That is the abomination of desolation. That is the ultimate outcome of the teaching of Jezebel. You see, the depths of Satan are not in violence in wickedness, immorality, and perversion. The depths of Satan is in people holding a book called the Bible, believing they have the truth, and so impervious to the truth that when it slaps them in the face, they don't even know that it happened. That's the depths of Satan, my friend. Every time pass out track, someone will say, Oh, I don't need that, I'm fine. It just breaks my heart, I want to say. How do you know you're fine? So the people won't even let you have a conversation anymore. I don't need that. Let me tell you something. You need this. Because without it, you're going to miss eternity with Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And Jesus told this church, He says, even though you have this going on, I'm not putting you aside, but I'm going to get rid of those that don't. What's He say here in verse 23, the last phrase? Let's just read the whole verse. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Jesus says, listen, those fiery eyes that are testing the church right now, those brazen feet that are standing and dividing between what is right and wrong is going to judge each individual soul. And I'm going to render unto each individual soul the reward of their works. And if you can think in your heart, boy, I'm so glad they're going to get theirs. Let me tell you something. You better be careful. You might be first in line. Because that's not the mind of Christ. That's not the spirit that Christ gives people who believe in Him. Verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, 
As many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Now, if there's something that we need to pray about as a church, it's that right there. Do you know that the church in Thyatira was an active church in 100 A.D. when this book was written? And they already had everything they needed. The pattern was already established. There's nothing new that needed to be introduced for the church at Thyatira to be Jesus' church. Can we say amen to that? All we need to do is hold fast to that which we already have. That's what he told the church. He said, you don't give up. What you already have. Don't be looking for something new. That's Jezebel. And we could, I could keep you here until the church service this evening on that, but we'll keep moving. He said, And him that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. How do, how do you keep Christ's works until the end? What does that verse, he that endureth the end, the same shall be saved, what does that mean? You see, he that overcometh only overcomes because Jesus is already living in them. He that endures unto the end endures because it is Jesus living in them. That's why the promises to rule over the nations take time this afternoon to read uh, Psalm chapter 2, that is the, uh, the thought and intent that is quoted here by John in Revelation is breaking the nations with the rod of iron. That is the power and authority that Christ will exercise during his millennial kingdom. Read Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, I believe it is. That innumerable company, praise God, for, me, for thou hast made us what? Priests and kings. That's the ultimate fulfillment. We'll rule and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. That's the promise to them that hold fast and do the works that Jesus has ordained till he comes. And then he ends it with saying, I will give unto him the morning star. I'll tell you what, I'm so glad I don't have one of those newfangled Bibles because... They confuse the morning star with Satan. Let me tell you, the morning star is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What did David say? Let me read the verse. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That's the theme of the whole Bible. Is to be satisfied with Jesus Christ. That was the teaching of Jezebel. Was not to be satisfied with the local church. To look for something bigger. Something more controlling. Something that could actually get something done and really change the world in which we live. Well, you read the history of man's greatest attempts to change the world in which we live. Uh, They're not very pleasant. Nazism, communism, multitude of dictators over the centuries, 
Finally, the United Nations, one of the bloodiest chapters in mankind's history, are the peacekeepers of the United Nations. Jezebel. They're all doing what they call good works and righteousness. But you know where the truth is? Right here in this book. Amen. And you know where we live this book? Right here in an organization called the local church. Jesus' church. How, how can we know it's Jesus' church? Well, he told the church at Thyatira to hold fast that which they already had. Guess what? We're still trying to hold fast that which the church at Thyatira had. Nothing new. Oh, we have different songs we sing, yes. And we have some technology that's a little different. But we have the same Bible. And we're doing the same thing. We're still trying to tell people about Jesus across the street and across the globe. Same thing the church was doing at Thyatira. You see... No one is more lost than those that have a false notion of what the Bible says. I've often, in trying to talk to people, said, at least, would you give me the opportunity to open this book so that you can make a decision based on what the Bible says instead of what some freak on the Internet or the radio or television says? Would you want to base your eternity on something you heard on the radio, television, internet, instead of what the Bible actually says? You see, that's Jezebel. There are thousands and thousands and millions of people all over this world that meet in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the tribulation comes, nothing's changing for them. They're going right through it because they have false goals and false purpose and false faith and false everything. That's what Jezebel does. How do we teach the difference? Number one, by living it in our own lives. And as God gives us opportunity, telling it to others. And all God's people say, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight.